And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Who are the most difficult people to reach uh, with the gospel? Huh? Wow. I was not expecting that. But that yes, I, I, I understand that. He, we, had a, we had a chorus of family up here. Uh, now I realize that God is sovereign, that only He can save a soul, and uh, nothing is too difficult for Him. But from a human standpoint, some types of people seem to be more difficult to bring to saving faith than others. Now the Bible, and what we're going to look at this morning, it shows us that the most difficult people to reach are the religious people who simply trust in their religion. They relish their rituals and their religious traditions. They don't see their need for a Savior from sin. They actually view themselves as pretty good. They think that they are right with God because of their uh, religious performance. Uh, They may be Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, uh, Buddhist, Mormon, Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. They may even be Baptist, shock of all things. They think that their performance of their religious rituals will somehow commend them to God, but they lack reality with the living God on the heart level. Paul knew that the most difficult of people uh, to reach with the gospel were not the pagans that he cataloged for us in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, like Matthew or Zacchaeus, the tax collectors, or like the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with his tears and dried them with with her hair. Uh, many obviously wicked people know that they are sinners. Uh, they may not be sure that God could ever forgive them, but they welcome that news when they hear it. And we see that all through the New Testament where sinners, known sinners, come to God. But the religious Jews didn't see themselves as sinners, and so they didn't see any need for a Savior. And they trusted in their Jewishness, in their possession of God's law, and in their conformity to prescribed religious uh, rituals, particularly circumcision. Um, Why did they need the gospel? Why did they need to get right with God? Didn't Paul know who they were? Well, in fact, Paul did know who they were. Uh, At one time, uh, he had taken great pride in his circumcision, in his Jewishness, in his zeal for the Jewish religion. But he didn't know Christ. He didn't have his sins forgiven, and he was not reconciled to God. So he wants his fellow Jews uh, who trusted in their religious rituals to see their need for the gospel. So he hits them with what would have been a shocking argument. The obedient Gentile is going to fare better on judgment day than the disobedient Jew. Now, Paul is trying to strip every religious person of his religiosity as the basis for acceptance with God so that they'll be driven to the cross of Christ for mercy. He wants us to see that reality with God is not a matter of outward conformity to religious rituals, but rather of obedience that results from God changing your heart. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want to happen this morning is our hearts to be changed. And we understand that that takes you, that takes your Holy Spirit. So speak these truths into our hearts. Help us to see where we are merely religious, Father, and not dealing with reality. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, last week I said that there were three reasons that the Jew would claim to have exemption from judgment. Do you remember what they were? Number one, uh, he was a son of Abraham. Number two, he had the law of Moses. And number three, he was circumcised. Circumcised. So here, Paul hits the first and the third reasons in our passage today. Paul wants to show that being a true Jew and being truly circumcised, they're not outward matters. They're matters of the heart. They're inward. So number one, reality with God is not a matter of outward conformity to religious rituals. Paul says in verse 25, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. God instituted the practice of circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin, as a sign of the covenant with Abraham. And that was about 500 years before he gave the law to Moses. It symbolized moral purity and separation from the world unto God. Under the law of Moses, it became a sign of membership in that covenant community. So as a God-ordained ritual, circumcision was of value to the Jews as a reminder of their covenant relationship to God and of their need to be morally set apart from the world to God. Now, when Paul says that circumcision is of value, he's speaking to the Jews as Jews. When he addresses those who are in Christ... He says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything (laughs) but faith working through love. Circumcision was a Jewish sign of the covenant that ended when Jesus instituted the new covenant. Except for hygienic reasons, it holds no value for believers in Christ. Also, when Paul says circumcision is of value if you practice the law, I don't understand him to mean if you practice the law perfectly. Some think that when Paul mentions keeping the law in verses 25, 26, and 27, he is speaking hypothetically of perfect obedience, which no one can do. But I understand him to be referring to a lifestyle of obedience to God's law, which is possible for those who have been born again. Now, for such Jews, before the cross, circumcision was of value. But the the, the perpetual danger of religious rituals, even those that God commands, is that they become external only. Way back in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses exhorted Israel, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Later, in Deuteronomy 30, he again gave the ritual a spiritual meaning when he promised, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord the God with all, Lord, Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. Now later, the, the prophet Jeremiah, he preached using similar imagery. In, in Jeremiah 4.4, God says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So Moses and Jeremiah, they're making the point that the physical physical ritual of circumcision had to be accompanied by its spiritual meaning, namely holiness and obedience to God on the heart level. 
And without such reality with God, the ritual is really has lost its essential meaning and was virtually worthless. worthless. But in Paul's day, um, the Jews had come to put great stock in the ritual itself. Several of the Jewish rabbis actually taught that no circumcised man will go to hell. So Paul agrees with Moses and Jeremiah that if they do not obey God's law, that their circumcision has actually become uncircumcision. If they lived in disobedience to God, they might as well be pagan Gentiles. Their circumcision meant nothing. Now, how do we apply Paul's words to Christian rituals? Uh, Do the rituals of the ancient Christian church have spiritual value for us today? My boys struggled with this. They went to Taylor Tillman's um, funeral yesterday, and it was at the Episcopal, uh, or excuse me, Anglican, it's now Anglican Church. They do things a lot differently, and they came home just shaking their heads. What was that? Okay, Um, Many who were raised in evangelical circles, which we are, uh, have actually moved to Anglican or Episcopal or Roman Catholic or Orthodox churches because they felt that those rituals and the liturgy, the parts of the service, the standing up, the sitting down, the, the, the reading of the things together, all these different things, made them feel closer to God. So are we missing something if we abandon these rituals? Well, first we need to make clear that there are only two rituals or sacraments or ordinances prescribed in the New Testament, baptism and communion. To add, uh, to add other rituals or to invest those two rituals uh, with meaning that is not taught in the New Testament, that's actually to worship God falsely. In New Testament terms, every believer is a priest. That's why we we call it the priesthood of the believer. We do not need a human priest dressed in special robes and vestments, offering the sacrifice of the Mass or performing rituals on our behalf. Jesus is our high priest, and He offered Himself as the complete and final sacrifice for our sins. Also, the New Testament is clear that being baptized or partaking of communion, they're of no spiritual value unless you do them out of faith in Christ. Baptism, whether performed on infants, which I believe is wrong, or on those old enough to understand what they're doing, it does not convey salvation or forgiveness of sins. And neither does partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, if a baptized person acts in obedience to Christ as a confession of saving faith in Christ, then yes, baptism is of great value. If we partake of the Lord's Supper as a reminder of His death on our behalf and all that that means to us, well, it too is of great value. So we should not minimize or abandon these rituals. But there's no spiritual benefit conveyed just by going through these religious rituals apart from reality with God through faith in Christ. So Paul's first point is that reality with God is not a matter of outward conformity to religious rituals. Number two, reality with God is a matter of obedience that results from God changing your heart. Now, at this point, Paul would have shocked his Jewish readers. He makes a couple of points here. First, A, God regards obedience that results from a changed heart as righteous, and that being apart from religious ritual. 
In other words, a changed heart simply brings about good deeds. Paul writes in verses 26 and 27, So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who was physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now, this is kind of shocking. He, he means if a Gentile obeys the moral law, the moral requirements of God's law, God will count him as righteous, even though he is uncircumcised. And this is even more shocking here. The obedient but uncircumcised Gentile someday will condemn you who have the written law and have been circumcised, but are disobedient to that law. Now, he doesn't mean that obedient Gentiles literally will act as judges against the Jews, but rather that they will kind of be a witness for the prosecution in the sense that the Gentiles' obedience is going to be evidence of what the Jew ought to have been. Now, there's a debate about who this uncircumcised man is who actually keeps the requirements of the law. Is this merely hypothetical again? Does Paul mean that no Gentile has ever kept the law, but if he could, he would be counted as circumcised and thus condemn the Jew? Or could Paul be referring to unsaved Gentiles like Cornelius? Um, remember, he was a devout, God-fearing man. Or is he referring to Gentiles who really do obey the law simply because God has changed their hearts? Now, as I've already said, it seems to me that Paul is talking about genuinely, genuinely converted Gentiles who keep God's law because God has circumcised their heart through faith in Christ. Now, Paul is going to explain this in verse 28 and 29 where he says that being a true Jew, which means one who is in right relationship with God, is not a matter of external circumcision, but of internal circumcision of the heart and it's brought about by the Holy Spirit. Thomas Schreiner states, Paul's main point in this section is that no one can be saved and observe the law without the Holy Spirit. Those who have the Spirit are empowered to observe the law, but one only receives the Spirit by believing in Jesus. End quote. So Paul's point in verse 26 and 27 is that God regards obedience that results from a changed heart as righteous apart from keeping any external ritual of circumcision. Well, B, reality with God depends on His Spirit changing your heart, not on the performance of religious rituals. Here's what Paul says in verse 28 and 29. For He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He's talking about somebody that was born a Jew. Nor a circumcision that was that which is outward in the flesh, which the Jew did. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now again, this would have been shocking news to the Jews of Paul's day. They took great pride in being a circumcised son of Abraham. The Jews literally despised unclean Gentiles, and they took great pride in their Jewish lineage and religious rituals. But they wrongly were concerned more about outward matters than about their hearts before God. 
You remember Jesus in Matthew 23, 25, he talked about these type of folks. He said the outside of the cup is, is clean, but the inside is what? Filthy and full of sin. So Paul cuts through all of the external privileges and practices and says that the main thing in God's sight is not outward, but inward. Reality with God is a matter of the Holy Spirit changing your heart, not of you performing some religious ritual. Now Paul uses four somewhat overlapping contrasts to really drive home the point. Number one, it's not outward, but inward. Number two, it's not the flesh, but the heart. And number three, it's not the letter, but the Spirit. And number four, praise is not from men, but from God. So number one, reality with God is not an outward matter, but inward. Jesus made this point in the Sermon on the Mount when He pointed out that you have committed murder in God's sight if you have been angry with your brother. You have committed adultery in God's sight if you have lusted in your heart after a woman, even if you've never touched her. Again, God looks at the heart. You can impress people with, you know, polished prayers, powerful sermons, generous gifts to the church, all sorts of religious activities. But all the while you're impressing people, God is looking at your heart. What was your motive when you did those things? And what kind of thoughts were you entertaining? You can take the communion elements while you're lusting after a girl that's sitting nearby or while you're mad at your spouse. To have reality with God, you've got to focus on the inward. Now, of course, if you're rightly focused inward uh, towards God, it will express itself properly in outward deeds. But those outward deeds always must begin with the inward. Well, number two, reality uh, with God is not a matter of the flesh, but of the heart. Paul says, kind of in line with Moses and Jeremiah, that true circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but of the heart. This means that we must deal with sin on the heart or the thought level. We must put to death or cut off the deeds of the flesh when they occur in our minds. In Romans 12, or excuse me, Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This means that the second you're tempted, turn from it. Cry out to God's Spirit to strengthen you to, to run from it and fill your thoughts with Christ. If you develop that habit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh by outward sins. Number three, reality with God is not a matter of trying to keep the letter of the law in your own strength, but of God's Spirit changing your heart by faith in Christ. Now, way back in Ezekiel chapter 36, um, God promises a spiritual revival for His sinning people. And th these are three of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If, if you've hung around here long, you've heard me reference them before. This is God speaking through uh, Ezekiel. And he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." 
Now, did you hear all that? That's what God says that He is going to do for us. Now, those verses now apply to all who believe in Christ. Ezekiel was talking about what we call the new birth or regeneration. Do you remember what Jesus told uh, Nicodemus? He said, you really need this, Nicodemus. Uh, your observance of religious rituals is not enough. Remember he told him, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. He needed God's Spirit to give him a new heart by faith in Jesus' death on the cross for his sins. Now, the letter that Paul refers to, that's talking about the past age of the law and its many commandments, 613 to be exact. The problem was the law combined with sinful human flesh, that always results in disobedience and death and nothing else. The law by itself did not give the power to obey it. The law only gave condemnation because you could not keep it. But now that God's Spirit has been poured out on His people and He has changed their hearts, uh, you are able to obey God from the heart. So reality with God means that His Spirit has changed your heart so that you are now able to joyfully obey Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, number four here, reality with God means that you do not receive praise from men but from God. Now, this refers ultimately to the time when uh, we receive from God uh, rewards, as it were, uh, when Jesus returns. In 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, Paul says that when the Lord comes, He will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, this means that those whose hearts have been circum circumcised by the Spirit, they kind of live with a new focus. Rather than to seeking, uh, uh, to seeking to impress others with their religious activities, which is what the Pharisees did, they seek to please God from the heart. Instead of focusing on what others think about us, we focus on what God thinks of us. As Paul said when he contrasted himself with the Judaizers in Philippians 3, they focused on the ritual of physical circumcision. And here's what Paul says. For we, talking about believers, are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What a blow to say you put no confidence in the flesh. That just flushes circumcision right down the toilet. Well, the final phrase in our passage, His praise is not from men, but from God. That's really a word play that Paul is putting into use here that the Jews would have recognized. Paul wrote in Greek. His Jewers uh, would know that in Hebrew, Jew, the word Jew, that comes from Judah, like the tribe of Judah. And it means praise. So Paul has a double meaning here. He says, His praise or His Judaism is not from men, but from God. That deals with the identity as a child of Abraham. That's not where it comes from. The praise, your Judaism, comes from God. In other words, the one who has experienced the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit is the true Jew. If you know Christ to get today in this saving relationship, Paul says you are the true Jew. Uh, he hasn't gone through a religious ritual, physical circumcision, 
but he's now pleasing God who has given him a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ. He isn't practicing his religion to get the praise of men. Rather, he lives before God so that one day he will hear, well done, now good and faithful servant. His praise will be from God. Now, if you had asked one of these religious Jews, are you going to heaven, they would have probably been offended. He, he would have said, of course I'm going to heaven. And if you had pressed him for reasons why he was going to heaven, most likely he would have said, well, I'm a Jew and I'm circumcised. In other words, he would have had absolute assurance of his salvation. But according to Paul, it is a false assurance. Let me ask you, why should God let you into heaven someday? And you say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. Yeah, that doesn't get it. Okay, um, I, I believe in God and I've always gone to church. Well, that's not good enough either. And you say, well, years ago I invited Jesus to be my Savior and I got baptized. Well, that has potential. But here's the real question. Has God changed your heart so that you now seek to love Him, to obey Him, and to please Him on the heart level? Do you live to know Christ more deeply? Are you growing in victory over the deeds of the flesh and in habitually displaying the fruit of the Spirit? What happens when you squeeze a banana really hard? What will pop out? If you squeeze it hard enough, it, banana is just, just going to come out. If you squeeze tomato, what's going to come out? Tomato. What happens when you get squeezed? Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, whatever fruit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And against such things, there is no law. In other words, nobody's going nobody's to be mad at you if you get squeezed and love comes out, or joy, or peace. So what comes out of you when you get squeezed? If your honest, is, honest answer is, well... Not really, that's, that's not why I'm living those things that I talked about. Maybe you're into re ritual rather than reality. Reality with God is not a matter of going through religious relig uh, rituals or of just a general belief in God. A general belief in God is going to get you condemned. We've already covered that back in chapter 1. Rather, reality with God means having a personal relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. Reality with God means that He has changed your heart and you now see the evidence of that change in your life and it becomes a lifestyle of obedience to the Word of God. Don't substitute religious ritualism for true spiritual reality with the living God. Following religious rituals has never saved anyone. True religion is a matter of God changing your heart. Do you have that heart change this morning? Let's pray. Father, for some that's going to be a difficult question. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth, to see the answer, Father. Have you worked in their life through the Holy Spirit to take out their heart of stone and give you a, give them a heart of flesh that is responsive, responsive to God? So Father, do that this morning, Father. May we see your glory shine as you reveal yourself to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Ezekiel says, or God says through Ezekiel, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. What are some words that describe stone? It's hard, it's heavy, it's inert, it's dead, it's unresponsive. He says, I'm going to take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Now, he's not using flesh here like Paul does in the New Testament. When Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about sin. No, he's talking about, no, it's an actual heart. It beats. It's responsive. It's alive. And now it can see Jesus for who Jesus really is. Before that transformation, before that being born again, matter of fact, Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God without being born again, much less enter it. Has that happened to you? Have your eyes... Have the scales been taken off your eyes? Paul uses that language. Has the wax been taken out of your ears so you can hear the truth of the gospel? Has that hardness of your heart been taken away so that you can trust in Jesus Christ? Has that happened to you? I'm not talking about just praying a little prayer. There's all kind of rituals that we as Baptists have come up with over the years. And, and a lot of them are harmful, to be honest with you. Has God changed your heart. Number one, if he has not, all you have to do is receive Christ by faith. Do it. If you're a believer, are you walking (laughs) in your life as if God has changed your heart? You're supposed to. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, I urge you, brothers, brothers, that's brethren and brothers mixed, I urge you, brothers, to walk uh, in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Does that describe you as a believer? I hope it does. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.